0: So if you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and get it out. We're going to get into Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week, uh, war. And so I'm not really big into titling my sermons. So last week was called war, and this week is called war part two. So we are in the middle of war right now, and we are basically talking about what it looks like to engage in this spiritual battle with creatures, forces that we can't see. So let's pick it back up, and we'll start in verse 10. If you don't have a Bible, we're giving them away in the lobby, Take one, they're yours, take two, and uh, in the meantime, you can look at this screen. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you can stand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Last week, uh, we began looking at what it means to be engaged in a war with the forces of evil. And... Uh, We saw that these forces are all kinds of different things. Not only can we not see them, but they're powerful. And the devil is roaming around, marking his territory. He's roaming, and they're called authorities and powers. And they're the rulers of this present darkness. And one of the most important ideas that we began to look at last week is that our battle is not with flesh and blood. It really is a battle with these invisible forces, these things that we can't see. And since it's not physical... The devil's main attack or his main tactic against us isn't physical. His main tactic against us is ideas and and philosophies, not guns and rocket launchers. He wants to bring us lies and manipulate us into being distracted and doubting and even... Disbelieving. In other words, he doesn't come at us like Rambo. You remember like the classic with AK-47s and ammo strapped to his chest so he can cut us down. He, he comes at us like he came to Eve in the garden as a seductress. Wooing us and whispering into our ear this idea of, man, look at all that you can have if you just step away from God. That's what spiritual warfare is. He is the master manipulator and deceiver. Jesus says in John Chapter 8, that he is the father of lies. And when he speaks lies, he speaks his native tongue. And since that's true, our main battle with this spiritual enemy is a battle over truth or it's a battle over reality. Are we living in reality or are we living in this like matrix as we saw last week? You know, you took the blue pill and, and you think it's real, but it's, it's not. It's manipulation. It's manipulation. One author put it this way, he said, This battle with the rulers and authorities isn't a battle over territory and nations, lands, and cities. It's not about rival clans and personal conflicts. It's not even a battle over religions and denominations. Our battle is a battle for truth. Truth is just what's real, like reality. We know this is true, too, because if you were here with us when we were in chapter 4, Paul says that the goal of unity and the goal of maturity in the church, in the body of Christ, is what? That we would stand firm and not be like children tossed to and fro by all of the winds of false doctrine and all of the teaching and tradition and human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul's talking about these deceitful schemes from the devil. He says the goal of of growing up in Christ is so that you won't be like little kids giving in to all of the devil's lies and living out of this false reality. That's what we're up against. Instead of being like kids, we should speak the truth to each other in love. God wants us to stand firm in his truth. I don't know if you caught it, but when I was reading those pa- that passage and, and that, those seven verses, the command to stand firm is, is given four times. Stand firm, withstand, stand up against, don't be like a kid getting tossed back and forth in the waves. And so then you can see, I'm just reminding you of last week, Satan's main tactics are not like flat tires in the middle of a storm, or, you know, like when the PA goes out right when the pastor gets up to preach, that's that's probably not him, it's probably technology, you know? Um... Even natural disasters that cause major physical damage. Like, that's not his main tactic. His main point of attack, his main tactic is against our hearts and our minds and our faith and our purpose and our mission. His goal is to shift our lives from what is real and true and good so that we live in the shadows of his darkness. This is so important for us today. Not only... Just as Christians, but because as Christians here in America, we are living in what is now a post-truth culture. Like it's not just postmodern anymore, it's, it's just post-truth. You can't tell what's real and what's not real. You can't tell what's real news and what's fake news, what's actual facts and what's alternative facts. Like when I was in high school, I could read an article from The Onion and know it was the onion. It was satire. I just, you could tell. Now you can't tell. It just, you don't know what to believe with all the misinformation and bias and deception. Truth is no longer truth, as Giuliani put it. This is why in 2016, Oxford Dictionaries actually made post-truth its word of the year. Because that's where we are right now, guys. It's an exciting time. A recent cover story in The Economist entitled, Yes, I'd Lie to You. The post-truth world basically analyzed how dishonesty is shaping every aspect of our lives, from media to journalism to politics, even like social media, countless other areas of our common life. So much so that we cannot tell when we're being lied to anymore. We can't tell when we're being manipulated, deceived, and controlled like puppets and here's the scary thing. I love scaring you before I get to good news. Our enemies are taking advantage of this. I heard a story recently, not too long ago, about a, a protest, a rally, and a counter-protest and a counter-rally that was basically organized in Houston, right in front of the uh, Islam, Islamic Center. Uh, and it was, it was to protest... Uh, basically two different visions of America. One of the groups was organized by this Facebook group called Heart of Texas, which called Texas the land of guns and barbecue. And the vision of this Facebook group is like, we got to make America America again. And so come on out and rally and we're going to protest and we're going to chant. We're going to have signs. We're going to do it on this side of the street. But then there was another Facebook group and uh, this one was called United Muslims of America. And so they organized a rally on the other side of the street, and their rally was called Save Islamic Knowledge. And so these two different groups, they got together, and they're, they're protesting, and they're, they're rallying, and they're yelling back and forth at each other to the point where it gets confrontational, and there's verbal attacks, and all of this stuff. And so much division is just spread. Uh, even a greater wedge is is created. The crazy thing though about this story is that both of those Facebook groups are run by Russians in the motherland. (laughs) The heart of Texas is run by Russians. United Muslims of America is run by Russians. And so from some like troll laboratory in St. Petersburg, they organized a rally and a counter rally and got Texans to yell at each other. Isn't that crazy? Some of you are like, I got to go check my groups because, like, I'm, I'm a part of some pretty crazy groups and maybe they're run by Russians. There's another story recently. Maybe you saw this of, of a woman who's an activist. She's a feminist. She's going to go stand up um, for, for women. And the way that she was going to do that was she was going to go to New York City and she was going to confront men who were showing their macho-ness and that toxic masculinity by manspreading. You know what manspreading is? It's what guys do when you sit down. You just, like, spread your legs, okay? But this is a sign of toxic, Matt, and it's just another thing you got to, guys, get, get with it, okay? Um, but she was going to uh, take on, she was going to confront all of these men in this subway by getting a bottle of bleach, and she was just going to walk up and pour bleach on their pants, like, they're reading their books, they're listening to music, they're just chilling, minding their own business. And this, this girl, literally, it's videotaped. Viral video, uh, over 6 million views. And, uh, and she, she has this, like, manifesto at the beginning of, of the video about how she's going to stand up for women, and she's going to take on toxic masculinity, and all of this stuff. And, of course, like, it sparked massive outrage. I mean, even feminists were like, this isn't feminism, like, what are you doing? And, and, of course, men are like, oh, women, you guys. And, and, and now, like, men and women are yelling at each other again. But you know what I'm about to tell you, right? It was Russia. <laughs> she was a Russian agent. And it didn't take place in New York. It took place in Russia. And all of the men that she poured the stuff on were paid actors. They came to work with a change of clothes. And it wasn't even bleach. It was water. And they were were interviewed, they were like, it was just another day at work, I got my paycheck, I changed my clothes, I did my acting thing, and that was it. It was propaganda. You see, what what Russia is doing right now in our post-truth culture is it's finding problems that already exist in the fabric of our culture. And then manipulating us into thinking that they're greater than they actually are with lies and misinformation and then getting us to live as if that is reality. In other words, they see like real issues. Real issues of, of racism and xenophobia, real issues between men and women that we should care about. But they tap into those issues and manipulate and lie and give misinformation so that the wedge is made even bigger between us, and so we're divided, and the result is that America becomes weaker and weaker and weaker in the world. What I want you to see today is that this is a lot, maybe even exactly like what the devil and his forces are doing with us as well. This is his tactic. He finds things that are already in the fabric of our natural system, which the Bible calls our flesh flesh is not a good thing in the Bible. It's not like skin and bones. It's our natural condition as human beings and our natural propensity to sin. So Satan finds these things that are already there. They're under the surface. They're a part of who we are. Things like, like doubt and anxiety and insecurity and discouragement. Things that aren't necessarily sin, but they're just a part of our fallen makeup. And then he also finds our sin. And and he taps into those things and he manipulates us with lies and misinformation so that those things begin to grow and they become our reality. And so when you think about yourself, you don't think about yourself in, in light of who you really are. You think about yourself in light of your struggle. Oh, this is the struggle that defines me. This is the sin that defines me. This is why... The first piece of armor that Paul tells us to put on is the belt of truth. Because the belt was the foundation of the soldier's physical armor. Truth is the foundation of our spiritual armor. Every other piece of armor that God gives us that we're going to look at to to wage war against the devil is connected to truth. Truth. Without truth, it all falls apart. You don't get to put on the the suit that doesn't connect together. You don't get to fight without the belt. And so what I want to do in our time today is help you see how all of this armor is not only connected to truth, but most importantly, how it was given to us by God so that we can combat the lies of the devil and stand firm. There are uh, four pieces of armor. We only have time to do two today. Okay? So... The way we're going to do this is I want to show you kind of one of the main ways that the devil comes at us or like one of the main lies that the devil kind of tries to manipulate us with and then show you how the specific armor is given so that we can combat that lie. The first one is that he goes after our hearts. This is his first tactic. It's his first point of attack. He wants to go after our hearts and our hearts are like the control rooms, for everything that we are and everything that we do, it's where our desires are. Your desire for security, your desire for acceptance and approval and love, and even the things that you love are all dictated in and by your heart. They're, they're put into order. So you order your loves in your heart, and then you chase after those loves based on how they're ordered. It doesn't matter how much willpower. You try to muster up, it doesn't matter how much information or truth you have in your mind, whatever you love in your heart is what you are going to do. And we talk about this all the time. You are what you love, okay? So, of course, the first point of attack from Satan is to go after our hearts, because as our hearts go, so we go. He wants to go after our, our love. And Satan's best tactic here is not just to get us to sin. Yes, he's the master tempter. Yes, he loves leading us into sin. But he doesn't have to work that hard to get us to sin. Because we still wrestle with the flesh. We still wrestle with the world system. Like, we live in his darkness in the world system. So, like, he doesn't have to try that hard to tempt you to sin. You are going to sin. And, like, by some mathematician, and you know, estimation, it's, like, hundreds of times a day. And your thoughts and your minds and your motives, like, Every single one of you. He doesn't have to do anything. We've got these old natures, these bodies of flesh that are prone to wander and prone to sin. That's why every Sunday we confess again just so that we can like clear the way and actually interact with God because most of the week we're not. We're just running after sin. And so those things are already working overtime. He doesn't have to, to try that hard. So one of his best tactics isn't just to tempt us to sin, but when we sin, to go after our hearts and convince us that God doesn't love us anymore. This is a tactic that gets me a lot. He accuses us. He, he brings our sins against us, sorry. Tells us that God can't love us, that we'll never be able to stand in his presence and guys, if he can get us to believe that lie, then he'll get us to operate out of a place of fear. And that place of fear leads to guilt and shame rather than a place of freedom, which leads to hope and peace, which are things that Christ came to bring us. He'll get us to essentially cover up our sin with fig leaves like Adam and Eve did in the garden. And when God comes to hang out with us, instead of enjoying his presence, we'll hide from him because we're scared of him because we're cloaked with shame and cloaked with guilt. See, Satan's goal with Adam and Eve wasn't just to get them to eat an apple and disobey God. His goal was to get them to eat an apple so that they'd be too ashamed and too afraid to talk to God when he came out to hang out with them. He wanted to ruin their fellowship. Ultimately, that was a slap in God's face because God created us for fellowship. And so it was a way of like kind of slapping God a little bit to say, I'm gonna take these people away from you. So now they don't want to talk to you, now they're scared of you. Ha, I gotcha. That was his plan. It's like how Elton John talked about his relationship with his dad in Rolling Stone not too long ago. He said, I was afraid of my father. I was walking on eggshells the whole time trying to get his approval. And he's been dead for a long time and I'm still trying to prove things to him. That's how Satan wants us to feel about our dad in heaven. Like we're walking on eggshells that we have to perform and succeed and do things to earn his approval so that we can stand in his presence. And so when we sin, he goes after our hearts with all kinds of accusations and all kinds of lies. Do you see what you've done? There's no way he can love you after that. What is this, the millionth time you've sinned like this? You think he's gonna forgive you this time? You do this like every week. You do this almost every day. You think he cares about like being with you now? There's no way you can stand in his presence. You are too dirty. How many of you believe that lie? I don't know if you have relationships. Obviously you do. Everyone does. You got parents. You got friends. You got coworkers. You got bosses. When you sin against them. There's this like, internal feeling that we just have that like, we have to do some penance in order for them to really forgive us. Like They might say they forgive us, but until we perform and grovel and succeed for a little bit, they're not really going to forgive us. How many of you have bought into the lie that that's how God operates? You sinned. You failed again for the millionth time. Yeah, he's faithful and just to forgive you, but like you know you've got to whip yourself on the back like 50 times, and you've got to grovel, or you've got to give more money, or you've got to sacrifice, or you've got to like help a poor, you know, person on the side of the road, or an old lady with her groceries, like you've got to perform before he'll really forgive you. Anybody feel like that ever? It's because your enemy is coming after your heart. He's tapping into the doubt. An insecurity that's already there and he's escalating so that you think it's reality, but it's not. If you've trusted in Christ, nothing could be further from the truth. Romans 5, one. let let's just go through some of these. Therefore, since we have been justified, which means made right, made clean by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, one and 2. Romans 8 is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ. Set you free. Why? Because as 1 Corinthians 1:30 says, Christ has become our righteousness. And I'm summarizing this, that's why it's not on the screen. Christ has become our holiness. He has become our redemption. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, God can love you and God does love you and always will and welcome you into his presence not only because Jesus has forgiven you of your sins and made you clean, but because he has given you his own righteousness. You're not just forgiven. You are perfect. That's who you are. We we talked a ton about this in Ephesians chapter one. You are now in Christ holy. You are now in Christ blameless. Blameless whole so when God sees you he does not see the filth of your sin he sees the perfection of his son Romans eight fifteen through 17 just kind of picks up says we don't have this spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry dad Abba Papa Father the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Friends, that is the truth. That's reality. That we have a righteousness that doesn't hinge on our performance and isn't diminished by our sin, but hinges on Christ's performance and his perfection. And so God gives us this truth to wear as a breastplate of righteousness to guard our hearts. See, the breastplate of righteousness, it doesn't, I mean, some scholars say it doesn't really protect your back, but it does. You, you, put, it, you put it on and it's, it's full thing. But the breastplate was intended to protect that vital organ of the heart for the physical soldier. And so God gives us this breastplate to cover our, our, I guess, control room as human beings, the seat of our emotions and desires and loves, and he protects it with his righteousness. You see that? Not our righteousness. This is a gift from God. He's the one who's providing the breastplate. So that we can stand firm when the accuser comes and tries to tell us that our sin has removed us from the presence of God. The second thing that Satan tries to go after is our mission. If you look at the text, he talks about how God gives us these shoes, these cleats, these boots with spikes on them that are ready to share the gospel of peace See, when God called us out of darkness and into his light, He gave us this incredible responsibility to go back into the darkness and rescue more people. <laughs> it's like um, in 9 /11, that famous story of Jason Thomas, who went back into that rubble and debris and was super dangerous, and he climbed up there with just a flashlight and a shovel. and he just was hollering out for, "Is anyone in here? Is anyone in here?" And he did it for hours looking for people until it was finally dark and he and his friend who were with him heard a faint voice saying, yes, we're here. And it was two police officers who had been buried for hours. And so Jason and his friend, they, they dug them up and they saved them. And, and they did that for two and a half weeks, every single day going back into the rubble, going back into what had been dismantled to pull more people out. That's what we are. We've been saved from the rubble. We've been saved from from this immediate death and destruction. And and then God says, okay, I've got the dirt off of you a little bit. I, I love you. I've made you clean. Okay, now get back in there and go save more people. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what followers of Jesus have been called to do. The problem, though, is that we have all kinds of fear. And all kinds of doubt and insecurity when it comes to sharing the good news of Christ's rescue with those who are still lost and need to be found. I'm not smart enough. I'm not articulate enough. I don't have all the answers. What if I like, come across you know, Bart Ehrman or Richard Dawkins and, and I'm not, I don't have the words to say? Like, you're, that usually doesn't happen, but we just think that everyone is just walking like philosopher, you know? And astute, you know, thinker. But what if I don't have the answers? What if I look stupid? What if I don't know what to say? The devil knows that's in there. Again, he can't create the fear and the doubt. He just knows it's in there. And so he taps into the fear and the doubt. And he taps into the insecurity. And he says, that's right. You aren't smart enough. You aren't articulate enough. You aren't influential enough. You're not tall enough. You're bald. (laughs) And he he brings these lies and he says, guys, the task is too big. The responses will be angry. They're going to be negative. And then he tries to convince us that the whole endeavor is actually worthless futile. How many of us have lost our impact in the world because we've bought into those lies. But God knows this. He knows we need help. He knows we're afraid. He knows we're insecure. He knows we're weak. And so he gives us these boots of readiness to keep us engaged in the fight. And these boots of readiness are promises like Isaiah 55, which I've probably quoted from this pulpit like a dozen times. It's one of my favorite verses of all time. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty but it will accomplish that which I purpose and it will be successful in the thing for which I sent it. That's a promise. That's truth. That is reality. That means that every time you speak God's word, even if you don't see the results, it will not return void. Maybe the person won't get... Saved, they won't get rescued but that word will accomplish its purpose and we also are promised later on which we'll see even if you don't see it in the moment it doesn't mean God's not going to rescue because of your faithfulness one of the most powerful examples of this promise was told by an English pastor named Francis Dixon and I totally stole this from my dad because it's like the greatest story I've ever heard Um, But the story was about this little old man with white hair, and uh, he shared the gospel faithfully on George Street in South Wales, Australia, for about 40 years. I'm going to tell you this story. It's a little bit long. I'm going to have to read a lot of it because it's so long, and I don't have that great of a memory, but stay with me because it's powerful. The story actually begins at the Crystal Palace Baptist Church in southern London, where a man asked if he could give his testimony at the church that he just was attending. And so the pastor said, sure. And so this man said, I just moved to this area from Sydney, Australia, just a few months ago. I was visiting Sydney again, and I was walking down George Street. And as I passed one shop, a little white-haired man stepped out in front of me, handed me a tract, and asked, are you saved? And if you died today, would you go to heaven? He said, I walked away, I didn't do anything, but I was dumbfounded. No one had ever asked me that question before, and on the flight all the way back to Heathrow in London, I was puzzled as I read that little track. So when I got back, I called a friend who was a Christian, and he told me how to accept Christ, and I just wanted to share with you, friends, that I am now a Christian. Of course, the church was excited to hear this, and they celebrated it, and the man became a part of their church. A couple days later, though, this pastor at the church who had just heard that testimony Uh, flew to Australia for a three-day conference, and during that conference, a woman came up to him and asked him for spiritual counseling. In the course of the session, the pastor asked, how did you become a Christian? When did you give your life to Christ? She said, well, I used to live in Sydney, and a couple months ago, I was doing some shopping on George Street, and a little white-haired man came up to me and handed me a tract and asked me if I knew where I was going to go when I died. (laughs) After I walked away, I visited this church where you're speaking today, knowing that they believed what that track talked about, and the pastor here led me to Christ. This pastor was like totally blown away because this is two stories about a little white-haired man on George Street in a matter of a week. A few weeks later, he flew to Perth. He was speaking um, at this island conference there. After one of the services, the leading elder of the church took him out for dinner. And of course, while they were at dinner, the pastor asked him, Hey, how did you come to follow Christ? How did you come to know Christ for the first time? And the elder said, Well, I was, I, I made a you know decision or prayer or whatever when I was 15. I said some words and and then I just kept getting like elevated in the church, but I was never actually a Christian. Not too long ago, I was on George Street in Australia, and this little white-haired man came up to me and asked me if I knew where I was going to go when I died, and I told him I was a Baptist elder at a Baptist church, and he said, that doesn't matter. And, and the guy said, I was really angry, <laughs> and it made me really mad because I'm an elder in this church. And his pastor looked at him and said, you know what? I've actually thought for several months about talking to you about the fact that I don't really think you're, you're a believer. <laughs> And he led him to Christ right there. Not long after that, this same pastor flew back to the UK. He was speaking in the Lake District at a Christian conference. And he just told these three stories, these three testimonies. Because how can you not? I and mean, it's incredible. Three just kind of seemingly random people from the same little white-haired man and George Street, he tells us a story, and after the meeting, three pastors who didn't even know each other came up to him and said they had all come to faith 30 to 35 years ago because of the same little white-haired man on George Street. The pastor was absolutely astounded, as you can imagine. The following week, he was at a different convention. Clearly, this guy was on the speaking tour and uh, on the circuit. And he was uh, in the Caribbean. He was talking to a group of missionaries. He was so excited about the fruit of this one little man's testimony. He shared it with his audience at the close of the session. Three missionaries came up to him and said that they had been saved 15 to 20 years earlier because of this little white-haired man on George Street. Shortly after that, this conference pastor was speaking at a naval chaplain's convention in Georgia where he spent three days trying to pump up a 1,000 chaplains to share the gospel with their... Cruise. At the end of the conference, the chaplain general took out the pastor for dinner and he asked them, and the, and the pastor asked him, How'd you come to faith? You know where this is going. The chaplain general said, I was in the Navy. I lived a terribly immoral life. We were doing exercises in the South Pacific. We ended up on a brief stay in Sydney. He said, I partied in downtown Sydney that night. I got on the wrong bus and it took me to George Street. As I got off the bus, an elderly white-haired man suddenly appeared. I thought it was a ghost. And he asked me, Sailor, are you saved? And if you died, do you know if you'd go to heaven? (laughs) He said, That confrontation shocked me so much. When I got back to the battleship, I sought out my chaplain, and he led me to Christ. I soon began to prepare for ministry under my chaplain's guidance, and now here I am in charge of leading 1,000 chaplains to share Christ with others. Fast forward six months to a conference in India, where the same pastor was speaking for 5,000 missionaries. At the close of a meeting, this humble Indian missionary took him out for a meal, and the pastor asked him, how did you, a Hindu, come to faith in Christ? The missionary pastor responded, I was in a very privileged position, working for the Indian uh, diplomatic mission, traveling the world. One of my diplomatic trips took me to Sydney, and one night I was doing some last-minute shopping on George Street, carrying packages, and a curious little white-haired man came up to me. (laughs) You know how the story goes. I thanked him, but I went on my way. I was so perplexed, though, he said, I went to my Hindu, um, I don't know what they call him anymore, um, leader. And asked him what this tract meant. And the guy didn't know what to tell him. He said, why don't you go ask the pastor down the road? (laughs) And so he did. And the pastor led him to the Lord. And now he was leading missionaries. And they're winning thousands of Hindus to faith for Christ in India. It's almost done. Eight months later. Eight months later, the pastor of Crystal Palace Baptist Church had meetings in Sydney. And he asked the pastor there, do you know a little white-haired man who shares the gospel on George Street? <laughs> and the pastors were like, oh yeah, we know that guy. Yeah, he's been doing that for years. His name is Mr. Jenner. I don't know if he does that anymore. He's pretty old now. And so this pastor's like, I have to meet this man. Please take me to him. And so they're like, sure, yeah, we know where he lives. And so they they took this pastor to Mr. Jenner's little apartment. They knocked on the door and he opened it and he let them in and he poured them some tea with his you know, shaking old frail hands, even then still serving them. And as they sat together, this London pastor told Mr. Jenner all the encounters that he had had over the past three years and all the Christians that he had met from England to Australia to India to America who had come to faith in Christ because of his gospel witness on George Street. And the little man sat there weeping, tears gushing down his cheeks. He said, I made a commitment that I would try to share Christ with someone every single day. And if I could, as many as 10 people. He said, some days I got sick. Some days it it didn't happen, but it was just my desire. I wasn't paranoid about it. He said, when I retired from the military, I decided that I would devote my time to witnessing. And for the past several decades, I've been in one place. He said, I believe the busiest and best place in all of Sydney was George Street. So I've been there for 40 years. And he said, I've had a lot of rejections. Some people have been courteous. But then listen to this. He said, however, I must tell you, with tears gushing down his cheeks, that until today... I have never had one person respond favorably to my question. Until today, I knew of not one person who had accepted Christ from all of my witness for all of those years. These pastors eventually did a rough count and as best as they could determine, came to the conclusion that at least 146 Thousand people were influenced to faith because of this little old man's consistent, unfruitful to him ministry. And that's just the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Mr. Jenner died two weeks after that, unknown to just about everyone in the world. But man, you think he got a reception in heaven, right? If the angels party every time someone gets saved, like the angels knew Mr. Jenner. Can you imagine how discouraging it must have been for this little old man to share the gospel almost every single day for 40 years and never see a decision for Christ? Can you imagine the doubt and the insecurity, the hopelessness that he probably wrestled with on a daily basis? Just imagine the attacks that our enemy must have been hurling at him. You'll never do it. You'll never see it. Nothing's ever going to happen. You're not smart enough. You're not tall enough because everyone describes you as little. You're not young enough. You're not rich enough. Maybe you're not godly enough. Maybe, maybe God actually doesn't want to use you. No one is going to listen. Just imagine what would have happened if he had given into that lie. Imagine what would have happened if he had been manipulated to live in that false reality. Literally, hundreds of thousands of people would have never heard the good news of Christ's rescue. They'd still be dead in their sins, on their way to an eternity of suffering, separated from the God who created them and loves them. Guys, I know some of you are discouraged. To be honest with you, I'm discouraged. I haven't gone this long without seeing someone rescued in a long time, and it's not for lack of trying. Some of you have friends that you've been sharing the gospel with for a long time. Some of you have family that you love dearly, and you're not seeing any progress. Some of you have coworkers or neighbors that you've been trying to share Christ with, and you're being tempted right now to give up to stop sharing, to stop praying, to stop hoping. And maybe some of you have believed that awful lie. That missions is too big for you. That God doesn't want to use you. That God can't use you. And so maybe you've given up. Maybe you've placed yourself on the sidelines. But guys, the truth is so much better than the lie. Reality is so much better than the lie the truth that God has given us these boots that make us ready to share is that God wants to use every single one of us in his rescue mission and even if we don't see the results when his word goes out it does not return void this is what gave Paul confidence. He said, listen, like I, I might have planted the seed and maybe Apollos watered the seed, but it doesn't really matter Like who's planting and who's watering and who's reaping the harvest. Like God is the one who's working and he's promised that he's going to use it and he's promised that he's going to reward us for our effort. That's 1 Corinthians 3. Even if you don't see it, God sees it and he's going to reward it. God gives us shoes that are equipped for action, ready to share the gospel of peace. I don't know where you are today, guys, but I know every single one of us struggle with doubts and discouragement and sin and failure. Amen? The message that our enemy wants you to believe today and me to believe today is that those things are the greatest realities about who we are. That's what he's coming at you with. And maybe you came in here today believing it and living in that lie. But the message that Christ wants you to believe today is that no amount of sin, and get this, no amount of success either, could ever change the way that God feels about you. While you were dead in your sins, Christ died for you. While you were the enemy of God, he gave up his only son so that he could make you a son or a daughter in his family. While you were hopelessly lost in the darkness of this world, God came down, set aside glory, and came down to rescue you and bring you into his light. While you are drowning in the wake of your bad decisions, and some of you are still there, you're still swimming, you're still trying to catch your breath, he promised to take your greatest moment of shame and turn it into your greatest glory. Your justification and approval and love and acceptance and all of those things have been won, not by your performance, but by his on the cross. That is good news, and that is true. That's reality. And so God wants us to to live in this truth. And so he gives us His breastplate of his righteousness to remind us again, to guard our hearts. And he gives us these shoes. He provides everything that we need to make us ready, to make us secure. So as we go from this place, let's live out of that freedom. We're no longer slaves to fear. We've been set free to now call him Abba, Father. Let's live in the joy and the peace and the hope that come from that today. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel, this good news that Jesus came to die in our place while we were in our sins, while we were your enemies. In spite of our failure and all of our attempts to cover up, and to make ourselves look better than we actually were, you loved us and you saved us. We thank you. I thank you that not only the devil knows our doubts, but you know our doubts. And whereas he brings lies, you bring the truth that is so much better. In Christ, we are safe and secure. In your family, nothing can ever tear us from your love. Would you help us live out of that today, God? Would you help us put on that armor so that we live lives of victory and we can stand firm against the schemes of our enemy? Pray that you'd be glorified by us, that we would have an impact in our city, that you would use us We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.